What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead today on The Exchange. China is cracking down on its own companies. DD shares are plunging. We're going to look at why they're doing it and what it means for investing in China going forward. And OPEC meets but doesn't make a deal. Oil hitting a six-year high. Is $100 a barrel next? Jeff Curry of Goldman Sachs has some answers. And AMC gives up on a shareholder vote. Advertisers are giving up on Apple. And Wall Street bankers who don't want to give up working from home may be looking for a new place to work and finding it. Those stories are all coming up in rapid fire today. But we begin with the markets. And Dom Chu is back with those numbers. Hi, Dom. A bit of a delayed sell-off from the Friday jobs number and the rally that we saw to record highs. We did, by the way, believe it or not, hit a record high in the S&P 500 just after the opening bell today. And we are lower today, snapping a seven-day win streak for the S&P 500. And by the way, if you're looking for the context of where we're at intraday, at the highs of the day, the Dow was down roughly 27 points. At the lows, down 427 points. So we're kind of tilting towards the lower end of that range right now. So keep an eye on that. Watching what's happening with interest rates, because 1.36% is the yield that you will get for the best 10-year credit from the U.S. government. Those Treasury yields about 1.36%. You may recall that earlier this year, we were around 1.76%. So again, so an interesting move here with regard to the overall move for interest rates. You can see trending lower over that. Meanwhile, some outperformance in technology there. Also watching what's happening, of course, with the banks. With interest rates in focus right now, Goldman Sachs is down about almost 2%. J.P. Morgan Chase down about 2%. These two stocks here make up about 70 to 80 points of the Dow's overall drop today. So purely heavily, heavily weighted towards those financials on the downside. PNC Financial, Zions Bank Corp, some of the laggards on the regional bank side as well. So keep banks in focus. And then Chinese Internet, I heard you mention it in the open there, Kel. If you take a look at the overall market, we have seen a move lower for many of the U.S. listed shares here. But these two ETFs, this one in particular, the orange line, the Crane Share CSI China Internet ETF, ticker KWEB, tracks some of the biggest names in Chinese big tech and Internet. That's where a lot of that crackdown is happening. And by the way, since the highs over here earlier this year, Kelly, we are now down roughly 40% from those levels for those big Chinese internet stocks. So certainly something to watch there as well. Back Down 40%. We're actually speaking to Crane Shares, uh, the CIO, in just a moment. Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Let's pick things up right there with shares of DD dropping sharply after China revealed more details around its cybersecurity review of the company. Cybersecurity review includes banning new downloads of the app. The stock is plunging 20%. It's at 12 and change. That's well below its offering price of $14 for the IPO that just happened. It's down 30% from the recent intraday high. Dear Drabosa is here with the broader implications for U.S. investors and the latest this hour. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Kelly. Well, for Didi, those risks should have been well known. 15 pages in the IPO prospectus relating specifically to doing business in China. Before Didi, there was a crackdown on Ant Group, Alibaba, and other tech giants, including Didi itself. Now, Xi Jinping is sending a message that control and data protection, national security, 
more important than having global champions for tech companies. Now, that theme has already been hitting the performance of other Chinese companies listed in the U.S. You just saw that from Dom. But the fallout could be even broader. The story isn't done. Shares of SoftBank, Didi's largest shareholder, they were off 5% Monday in Tokyo. They recovered a little bit yesterday. Uber holds the second largest stake. It's down today, That though there could be a trade-off here since it competes with DD in markets like LATAM as well. Meanwhile, though, several sources are telling me that the crackdown could also affect TikTok parent ByteDance, one of the most anticipated IPOs this year and the first Chinese company to really succeed in the West. I'm told that its listing could be delayed until 2022 and its valuation in the private market may take a haircut. A valuation that I'm hearing was as high as $450 billion. Back to Didi, though, there is now a key question that investors are asking, and that is, did the Chinese authorities ask the company to delay its IPO? And if so, as the journal reported today, why weren't investors notified? Early investors, as well as ones that bought in through the IPO, Kelly. Uh, lots of questions surrounding, and we're trying to get to the bottom of it. So, Deirdre, did you just say that TikTok, um, ByteDance's valuation was as high as $450 billion? Half a trillion dollars for a private company, you know, a pre-IPO company has to be almost unheard of. I, I guess that's just a side note. Um, but on this issue itself, what do you think we watch for for the next shoes to drop? That's a good question. I think you see how Didi handles this. And we did get a statement from them sort of saying thank you to the Chinese regulators because they're going to emerge stronger from this. But I think you also watch what the Chinese authorities do now. Does the crackdown continue? Um, we saw three more companies publicly listed, newly IPO Chinese companies on U.S. exchanges uh, targeted over the weekend. So is there going to be more? What happens with the big, big giants like Tencent and Alibaba and Meituan, there was this thinking that when Tencent received that huge fine in the billions of dollars, that maybe it could move forward. Does that still apply or does the crackdown continue? So those are all things to watch for, as well as commentary from the CCP. We heard Xi Jinping's comments last week, which, you know, some might say could have been writing on the wall. They said that they wanted to protect their own, you know, sovereignty and their own companies. And it was very nationalistic. So we'll continue to monitor what comes out of the party. Chris, fascinating. Uh, Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa with the latest there. For more on what China's crackdown means for both investors and its relations with the U.S. and beyond, let's bring in Derek Scissors. He's Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute. And as I mentioned, Brandon Ahern is the chief investment officer at CraneShare. So it's great to have you both here. Derek, you think you have kind of a simple explanation for what's going on here. Uh, what is it? Well, we all know that there's an evolving regulatory situation in China where they're trying to get a hold of what they want data rules to be uh, like. But the simple explanation here is the Chinese are signaling to companies with overseas exposure, whether that's in commercial sales or, or financial overseas exposure, that whatever our rules are going to be, they're going to trump anybody else's rules. I don't care if you can make a lot of money overseas, the party is saying. Our rules are the ones you're going to have to follow. Uh, and so when you're looking at negotiating with the U.S. about staying on U.S. exchanges in anticipation of a 2024 delisting, you better realize that whatever we choose this year, next year, it doesn't matter, 
you're going to be following our rules and everybody else is out of luck. And if that means you lose money, then get used to it. So, Brendan, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We've heard this theme on CNBC on almost every show so far this morning, which is that people who have had investments in Chinese companies where they've gotten burned are saying, I will, I, I'm done. I'm over. I think Jim Cramer joked that you'd have to be a fool to buy into the next big Chinese IPO. You know, people say you can get exposure there maybe through an ETF more broadly. But, you know, if you were invested in an individual name, you have to be prepared for this kind of financial loss. What would you say about the conclusions that investors are starting to draw here in the U.S.? Well, all we're talking about is the risk. We never talk about the rewards. These Chinese companies that we hold in K-Web are some of the strongest, fastest growing companies globally. The regulatory has not impacted their balance sheets nor their net income statements. We didn't see that in the fourth quarter. We didn't see it in the first quarter. There's a lot of regulatory bark, but there's been no bite. And it's not showing up in the net income statements. It's not showing up in the profitability of the company. And I think it's important that equity investors should maybe look at the bond market. The credit default swaps on U.S. listed Chinese stocks has actually been tightening. So this is the exact opposite of of the rhetoric we're hearing. You would think the credit default swaps would be widening. They're getting tighter. So, Derek, let me bring you back in here. You mentioned delisting in 2024. And what kind of access should American investors expect to continue to have to these major Chinese companies, especially for those who might be thinking about getting into something like ByteDance uh, because of the success of TikTok? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think they're going to be delisted in 2024. I think that was a signal that the U.S. wants more disclosure from China, but maybe not full disclosure. Um, if we wanted to delist them, we could have delisted them in 2022, as some senators suggested. So I think there's going to be a negotiation. Uh, it's going to turn away some Chinese companies uh, that will go to Hong Kong, which is making its own disclosure requirements easier, and you'll have to invest in the Hong Kong market. I still think there will be Chinese companies listing in the U.S. and listed on U.S. exchanges after 2024. And I agree uh, with Brennan that we're focusing on the risk here, and the risk can be very high for individual companies. But for the sector as a whole, this is a, a reordering. It doesn't change the fundamentals. If you have a good product, you still have a good product in a large market. Um, and so I, I think one company, uh, hitching your, your investment portfolio to one company in this case is a mistake. Um, but fundamentals are pretty much the same as they were six months ago. So, Brendan, a final question on that, though, because there is, I suppose, a concern that people have about how large these Chinese companies can grow if their access to foreign markets may be reined in somewhat by the leadership's goals in China. So maybe you have a point of view if it's either company by company or are they kind of reining them in today in order to unleash them uh, to global markets tomorrow? What's the what's the agenda here? I think governments globally are recognizing that our our cell phones have become mobile surveillance devices. We've seen regulation in Europe. It's potentially coming uh, here in the U.S. with the new uh, FTC chair. And it is happening in China, where I think these companies have not played nice in the sandbox. They've really done everything to hurt one another. They put their own their own profitability potentially ahead around user and data rights. And so so this this that's that's being rectified and the companies are adhering to the rules. They're adapting. And and I think they're going to be still profitable. I mean, 30 percent of all retail sales in China goes through the companies we hold in KWeb. That's not changing. 
Uh, these companies aren't going away. And I, I would 100% agree with, with Derek's point. You know, we just need some communication and dialogue. Uh, the Chinese companies, I think the new new uh, heads of the PCOB and SEC, we can resolve this audit issue. It's been out there a long time. And I think the new leadership, we can see this put to bed finally. So, Brendan, obviously you think your index or ETF is the best way for people to have that Chinese exposure if they want to get it down 40 percent from the highs that Dom mentioned. And we just showed the year to date chart as well. Derek, I just want to end with a, a point you might make, because you've also kind of implicitly endorsed the idea of holding a basket of Chinese companies opposed to any, any individual name. But even for a basket, what would you say is the biggest risk out there for investors who might be thinking after today that maybe they don't want an individual name, but a broad exposure route is still the best way to go? Well, just let me clarify. Uh, I, I don't think an, indivi an individual name is very risky because you, uh, the more prominent it is, the more it's likely to be a target for Chinese regulators as they try to scare other companies. Um, I, what I said was that, that fundamentals are unchanged. Uh, I think you know, the reason to look uh, at, at Chinese companies is where do you see growth in China? Now, there's some people will come on here and tell you China's booming everywhere. That's false. It is, you know, that's just simply untrue. But there are sectors in China, it's a very big economy, obviously, that are doing well. So if you're betting medium term or long term and you see those sectors growing, I do think this regulatory difficulty is transient. Uh, the Chinese will target some companies, maybe ByteDance, to scare everyone else. Then the regulatory side will settle down and whatever the growth story is will prevail. In some cases in China, that's weak, but in other cases, it's quite robust. And what sectors would those be in, a, in just a word or two, Derek? That, you, that people should think about having exposure to the parts of the Chinese economy that are still strong? Uh, I, would, I would look at anything that's a bet on aging. Um, the country's aging rapidly, as we know. The Chinese are adjusting to it. They're trying to encourage births. Uh, that's probably not going to work. So there's a lot of elderly consumption, as well as health care, of course. There's management of money of, of older people who have saved a lot of money in China. But I would look at their consumption patterns, which I think post-pandemic, whenever that is, it's a very complicated question, I think you're going to see the elderly population's consumption being very strong. Fascinating. Derek Scissors of American Enterprise Institute, Brandon Ahern of Crane Shares, thank you both for a really good chat on this today. Uh, such a surprising move uh, with the shares of DD still down about 20% on the government's crackdown. Meantime, oil is going the other way and hitting multi-year highs before backing off of those levels slightly. WTI crude still over $73 a barrel, down 2%. But all of this comes after OPEC's 400,000 barrel a day production hike that was supposed to happen. Well, it's on hold. The big question now is when talks might resume among OPEC plus after breaking down last week and is $100 a barrel oil next. Jeff Curry is here now. He is the global head of commodities research at Goldman Sachs. Jeff, it's amazing how much has changed since we last spoke just a couple of weeks ago. It seems like every commodity is in the red uh, except for oil. And maybe you can explain whether this reaction is overdone to, to what OPEC did not decide. Well, I would view this lack of agreement as being bullish any way you slice it or dice it, um, because the only real bearish outcome here is a price war. And a price war just does not make sense right now. Um, first, all the members have come out and said, hey, they, they want to resolve this and you know, support the longer term longevity of the deal. Um, but second of all, the market is in a massive deficit right now, unlike it was last March. Last March, it was in a massive surplus. So it's just like, Give it a little push and down it went. Here, you would need to cough up half of the um, current excess capacity to push this market into a surplus, meaning that we estimate in the month of June, this market was in a 2.3 million barrel per day deficit. That means you would need almost 
half of the capacity just to get you back to being supply equal demand. So as you can see, a price war doesn't make sense. So the question really facing the market and facing OPEC right now is can they resolve um, these current differences in a diplomatic fashion over the course of the next um, four to six weeks before you have the next meeting um, you know, for the September output? Um, you know, we'll see if that can happen. Our base case is $80 a barrel in third quarter. Um, and the longer this takes, the more risk you get to the upside. You know, we could see prices spiking into that $85, $90 a barrel range during these summer months pretty easy. And I also want to say is that the tightest market is between now and Labor Day. Um, so you have the big surge in um, vacation and travel demand against really no supply. So this could really spike. So what's interesting, if you go back a few years, is that a spike in prices would actually introduce a lot of U.S. supply into the market. The U.S. would take market share and OPEC had to defend their market share by pumping more, too, and trying to you know, And that was all driving prices down. Is the ESG movement keeping U.S. production on the sidelines right now, Jeff? Is that an important part of the story or does that oversimplify the reasons why the U.S. might not be ramping we'll wait up? And, we'll wait and see. I, I like to say, show me a really good commodity company with great returns that's not getting capital. Remember, they're coming out of a really bad time period right now. Part of the reason there's no capital going into the sector is that the returns have been miserable. Just recently, we've seen this pop in oil price. And investors don't want to see a one or two month pop in oil prices. They want to see years of good returns. I like to point out in the bull cycle of the 2000s, Prices started to accelerate in 03, and it wasn't until 2006 that you saw capital come into the market. Wow. Um, because remember, a lot of these investors are going, hey, we want our money back before you start to really drill. And as a result, the focus of the C-suites is going to be on return on equity, not growth in, in large CapEx budgets. They want to get some returns in before they start to spend again. So final question, if we start spiking towards 80, 90, or even more per barrel, what does that mean in terms of the price at the pump? What does it mean for businesses who rely on fuel? How much of a tax is it on the economy? How much demand destruction do you expect to take place and when? Well, you look at the underlying global economy, it is very healthy right now. I like to point out in the U.S., you have 4 and $5 a gallon prices at the pump. Usually that creates a lot of noise in the U.S. with even you know, the president saying, do something. In the current environment, at 4 to $5 a gallon at the pump, we've heard nothing. That's an indication people have money in their pockets. The economy is doing what relatively well, which means you're going to have to go a lot higher before you start to do real demand damage. You know, the big question mark, what happens in places like India and other parts of you know, Southeast Asia? Um, we'll see it, you know, these price levels. But, but even there, you know, you've got the recovery, you know, the, the, the basically the, the vaccination boom creating this surge in global travel demand that's in many cases necessary. So I would argue the tolerance for prices this time around is going to be much higher. All right. We'll leave it there. Fascinating. And Jeff, as we go, would you still tell people to buy copper here on these dips and all the rest of the commodities? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, copper is a new oil. You know, we, we love the metal space and everything is getting hit today right now, even oil. It's a broad liquidation of the reflation trade. We view this as a buying opportunity and say, hey, you know, we see a lot more upside across the entire commodity complex. Yeah, it's all going the other way, especially the 10-year. We'll have more on that in a moment. Jeff, it's great to have you again. Thank you so much. Great. Jeff Thanks. Curry from Goldman Sachs. Coming up, we have record highs for Alphabet, Facebook, Microsoft, and Amazon today. May have something to do with those rates we were just talking about. What's next for these trillion-dollar tech stocks? We'll ask top analyst Mark Mahaney about that and Amazon's next chapter under its new CEO. Plus, 130 countries representing more than 90% of the world's GDP agreeing to a 15% global minimum corporate tax. 
We'll dig into the details, look at the sticking points for the nine holdout countries, and what it will cost companies here. We're back in a moment. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. A record $28 billion has flowed into stocks and funds in June as retail investors jumped back into the market. And despite the downturn today, stocks are still sitting near record highs. So what do you buy at the highs? Joining me with some picks is Alan Boomer. He's the chief investment officer at Momentum Advisors. Alan, it's good to have you. Uh, What's the common thread here? Walk me through some of your favorite picks. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's been a wild ride this year. Stocks have been on fire Uh, I think you've got to look at stocks that are trading at a low valuation. Value started the year off really strong. Growth has been the story of the last few months, but I really like value here. And so I'm looking at names that have a low valuation. Our favorite stock right now really is it's Verizon. Verizon trades at 11 times next year's earnings. It's got a really high dividend. It's a super important stock that whether we reopen all the way, despite what goes on with COVID, I think Verizon is an important company to own. And I like that stock here at these levels. All right, Alan, still no one comes on and goes, you got to own Verizon. I mean, it feels like a defensive pick fundamentally. Are you concerned about the market? Uh, here's what I, I'm concerned about generally in the market. We have a market that's trading at 22 times next year's earnings, which is really one of the highest valuations we've seen on the market in a long time. We also have really, really low volatility. You've got the VIX in the teens. And I just think that sets us up for an environment where there's a ton of complacency, where one false move and the market sells off. And I think there's a lot of unknowns out there. I think value stocks really just give you a nice margin of safety. I like the income that they produce. I also like being protected in the event the market turns the other way. Yeah, you've got BMY, Citizens, Devon Energy, McKesson. You also have some names in gold. And broadly speaking, a lot of these are inflation trades. This trade has gone completely sideways the past couple of months. So is it your view that this is an aberration, that you you want to sell big tech today? You want to, what would we call it, sell treasuries because you think rates are going higher? I mean, this... The picture of the world today feels like it's not the picture that you see uh, for the next sort of six months time. Sure. I'm not too worried about inflation. I know that there's been a, a huge uptick in inflation in the short run. I think in the long run, it, it will be you know right back to normal, if you will. I think the inflation we're seeing today, it's really the, the result of the reopening of the economy. It's a result of some dislocations in the labor market. And, you know, eventually I think we'll get back to normal. But if you're concerned about inflation, 
I like real estate still, even though real estate's up a ton this year. One of my favorite picks there is an ETF, REZ, the residential uh, portion of the real estate market. It's a REIT. Um, you know, again, that that's what I'm doing. If I'm worried about inflation, I'd also take a look at gold, which is down a ton this year. You know, and I think gold is always long run a very good play on inflation. Yeah. And if nothing else, pocket that Verizon. <laughs> Alan, thank you. That's for, right. Thank you for joining us. Today. We really appreciate it. laying out a lot of different ways you can play this market right now. Alan Boomer with Momentum Advisors. Coming up, shares of AMC are lower about 1% after the company backtracked on its plans for another stock sale. CEO Adam Marin giving a nod to retail investors with the move. But is it right for the company's future? Plus, we're watching the work from home divide on Wall Street as the big banks battle it out for top traders and deal makers. Whose strategy will pay off? We'll discuss. And don't forget, you can watch us live using the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you a check on the markets. Very different picture at the moment. At the high, the Dow was up 27 points. At the lows, we were actually down 427. We're down 314 at the moment. And the Dow is the underperformer in part because of the weak performance by the financials. Uh, both Goldman, J.P. Morgan down today. Energy sector struggling as well. It's down about 3%. Like we talked about with Jeff Curry a moment ago, that whole reflation trade kind of coming off the boil. He says fade it. Here's the uh, complex, as you can see behind me. The energy name's down 3% for the sector. Halliburton down 6%. Same goes for Diamondback, Occidental, and a few of the others. Going the other way, cybersecurity stocks are green today after this weekend's awful ransomware attack against thousands of businesses worldwide. The White House just now saying the policy remains the company should not pay ransom, but it plans to discuss these ransomware attacks tomorrow with the administration and other officials. Still modest gains, you might call them, in most of the cybersecurity names of 3 to 4% for FireEye and CrowdStrike. That said, Sentinel-1 is spiking about 11%. And shares of Apple are less than 3% from a new all-time high right now. J.P. Morgan is also out with a note saying this stock should beat the market in Q3 despite underperforming in the first half of the year. It's so far up 6% versus 15% for the S&P 500, adding 1% today. In fact, Apple has outperformed the S&P from July to September over the past seven years. Why? The iPhone launch event that comes up in the fall. For more on this call and that story, you can head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update this hour. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Gun violence over the July 4th weekend is down from last year, but still remains at troubling levels. The Gun Violence Archive reports that 233 people were killed and 618 were injured in some 500 shootings across the country. The casualty numbers are down about 20 percent from 2020, but not all crime is on the decline. On the news tonight, look at how easier bond policies may be leading to some more felonies by suspects that are out on bail. You can get all the details tonight on the news. The Biden administration is expected to release new rules to protect the rights of animal farmers against major meat processors. A trade group representing meat processors say that the proposed changes could lead to frivolous lawsuits. A group representing farmers and ranchers says that the new rules will help to reform the marketplace. 
And the Vatican says that Pope Francis is back on his feet after undergoing three hours of surgery. The Pope had half of his colon removed due to a narrowing of his large intestine. Pope Francis is expected to stay in the hospital for the rest of the week. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. Rapid Fire is up next. We're talking AMC. They're abandoning their share raise. Advertisers are abandoning Apple. And Wall Street wants their workers back, but they don't want to leave home. Those topics and more right after the break. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And joining me to break down the headlines, let's welcome in Ed Lee, reporter for The New York Times and a CNBC contributor, Christina Parts and Evelis. From CNBC, I just feel like it needs explanation when you know, we got Steve Grasso, who's also director of institutional sales at Stuart Frankel and a fast money trader. So it is really great to have everybody on board because we have a lot to get through today. And we're going to begin with AMC. They are shelving a proposal that would have asked shareholders to allow them to issue 25 million more shares. This would have diluted the existing base, of course. So after scrapping these plans, the stock was up more than 5 percent on the news, but it's now turned negative. The CEO on Twitter admitting that while he thinks shareholders should authorize the offering, what you think is important to us, he said, quote, and when AMC needs as much cash as it can get, boys, ladies, everybody, is this a smart business decision? Steve Grasso, you first, please. No, it's not a smart business decision. When a stock goes from 12 to 72, you have to raise capital. It's, it's as easy as that. And even the CEO said they wouldn't be around if they didn't raise money. So I think you got to take his lead and say, you know what, we're here for a reason. We're in the environment that we're in, and that's what helped us more than the fundamentals. Let's raise some capital. Christina, maybe he could turn around, look at the share price today, and go, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. I've heard, I've taken your points, but we're going to do it. Yeah, maybe this is just him trying to appease the shareholders, given that 80 percent consist of retail traders at the moment. That's up quite a bit compared to last year. Steve did mention the fact that the CEO announced not too long ago that had they not had those sales, those previous seven sales in the past nine months, they wouldn't have or they staved off or or they got rid of bankruptcy um, or they got themselves out of bankruptcy. So this is uh, probably a stupid decision on their part because the stock is trading so high. They issue those shares and then later on they can buy it back when it's five or ten dollars a share. And I'm sure a lot of people would disagree that it would fall that much, but it's possible given its current balance sheet. Ed, Ed, I can see both the, the case that people make who really want the company to take advantage of the high share price. But I can also see the critics who are starting to say, wait a minute, like Christina said, they've done seven uh, issues in nine months. They're still in trouble. You know, the equity price has gotten high. But, the, you know, as we talk, when we talk to the analysts, they say, listen, this business is still challenged, fundamentally speaking. So if they go ahead and do another offering, is it going to help them in the medium term, but hurt them in the long run? I mean, the box office this weekend was not great. Ed, did it surprise you? It sh- shouldn't it be higher yeah. at this point? It should be higher at this point, but also, you know, the other troubling aspect is that you know, he was looking to do the fundraise or to, to sell more stock to buy other theater chains. And, you know, there may be an opportunity with some of these, but, you know, investment now should really go into digital, right? So that, that's where the theater chains really missed out, whether it was five or 10 years ago, that's where they failed to innovate, right? In terms of figuring out their own way of reaching the consumer directly instead of, you know, sort of sticking to the, their guns around uh, the brick and mortar, just coming into the theaters itself. So I actually think in that way, that's that's a warning sign. At the same time, I think AMC is in a weird position because doing investor relations when like so much of your stockholders are retail investors is actually really hard to gauge. So <laughs> I think this is sort of a trial balloon. I, I looked up on Reddit, Wall Street Bets, you know, people are, are, are posting, you know, I just bought 50 more shares of AMC based on this announcement alone. I'm like, I that doesn't make sense, but okay, fine. It, 
there, I think there is a chance that they can reverse themselves, do the offering anyway, dilute everyone else, and and message boards like Wall Street Bets will 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 continue to buy into this stock. Um, it, they should take advantage of it, absolutely. I just question how they plan to use the money. I know we have to move along, Steve. One more on this. What could AMC do to, Ed's point, maybe leaning in on the digital piece of the equation as well, what could they do right now to make you, Steve Grasso, want to own the shares? <clears throat> well, you know, Ed brings up a, a, a tremendous point. There should have never been Netflix. You know what should have been Netflix, Kelly? Blockbuster. <laughs> they should have invested the money back then. So when AMC says that they want to invest in theaters, I think they don't want to spook any of the existing investors, but it should be digital. It should be streaming. They should figure that component out, and that would make me want to invest them. Don't you guys all think it's too fragmented already, though? You're su suggesting going streaming, but think of all the options that we're all signed into and paying each month. How much more can we take? Steve? Yeah, sure. And, and think about how archaic the movie theater process is. So I'm talking about trying to survive, not being uh, innovative to the extreme. Just trying to survive in a business model that is um, already doomed. <laughs> all right. Again, the shares have turned negative after all of this drama today. Maybe its own uh, biggest drama that's showing at this point. Uh, and we'll see now. It's, I guess the next move is on Adam Aaron to decide whether he wants to move forward with this offering with all of this said or not. Let's move along, talk about what's been going on with Apple. The privacy policy they recently instituted is already changing the digital ad market. Per branch metrics, less than a third of iOS users are opting in when, you know, you get those pop-ups that asks for your permission uh, to track data. As a result, prices for iOS mobile ads have dropped while prices for Android ads are on the rise. Spending on ads targeting iOS users is apparently down by a third in June while Android spending is up 10% according to TenGen, which is an ad measurement firm. Ed, what do you think? So Facebook is hurting clearly from this iOS change, but if Facebook is hurting, can you imagine how much the other apps that are a fraction of the size of Facebook are hurting that rely on, on this sort of ad data? So I actually think Facebook is a winner, bizarrely, um, in this. They're, they're going to gripe about it. They're going to talk about like how Apple is sort of this duopoly that controls too much of the ecosystem. But really, Facebook will ultimately be a winner because they still have more data than anybody else. And they can still use what, you know, what advertisers are now looking at what they call first party data uh, against the first party data that they collect. So Facebook's got some first party data, whether it's Nike or Procter & Gamble, they've got their own first party data and they can sort of go around this whole sort of tracking aspect, uh, the lack of a tracking infrastructure, and just sort of marry that data and figure out a way to target consumers. Facebook might also sort of go more directly into e-commerce and become an e-commerce platform if, you know, it's going to be harder to find uh, people across the different apps that they're using. So Facebook will ultimately win, even if they're hurting now. Everyone else is hurting much worse. I guess, and we have to move along quickly here, Christina, but the question is, is Apple's move now starting to shoot itself in the foot if these ad prices are dropping? No, well, these ad presses are dropping, yes, and you can have uh, Android users that are Android ad revenue uh, gain. But on the flip side, this is a great marketing tool. A lot of other tech companies are moving forward. Google has said that they're, I know it's not the exact same thing, but cookies are being removed from web browsers by the end of 2022. A lot of companies are going to be moving, especially as regulators, we're seeing this in Europe, uh, really put down the hammer on these firms. I think it's, it's smart for them to, to move ahead of the curve here in the United States. All right, fair enough. Want to get one in on this whole ransomware situation. Steve, I'm going to direct this one at you. We've got our evil mm -hmm. precipitating the largest cybersecurity crisis yet over the weekend by exploding, exploiting this uh, middleware provider, Kaseya, the software firm, to a lot of small businesses. They do back office stuff. They say 1,500 different kinds of companies and firms, a lot of them overseas. But even here, they say things like dentist office accounting firms are affected 
the hackers want $70 million in Bitcoin ransom, which, Steve, brings us to the cryptocurrency question in this mm-hmm. whole matter. Should you ban crypto in order to solve the ransomware problem? Because right oh, now, man. nothing else seems to be remotely close to arriving at any kind of solution for these catastrophic attacks that are crippling small right. businesses. So when, when you look at all of the uh, supposedly the companies that are supposed to protect you, they can't do anything. So I agree with you. It seems like the most obvious knee jerk is to ban crypto and everyone uh, will come through Twitter and say that that's not the case. But until you get some sort of a tracking on, on crypto, I think you have to contemplate that. Uh, wouldn't you agree, Kelly? I know that. Yeah. You sort of have to be 50,000 foot up. But what are the other options? Christina, Ed, I mean, raise your hand if you've got another option here, because as crazy as it sounds, you know, this was all started by an op-ed in the journal in late May where the, the Duke researcher said you can either have a world with crypto or have a world without ransomware, but you can't have both. Christina? But then why not have a crypto currency yeah, that isn't tracked? Sorry, I thought, but Monero, you and I have talked about this before. No, my hands Kelly. are down. I don't have I don't have an answer. I mean... There's no, there is no, there is no alternative. Like we're so embedded, companies are so embedded into the digital infrastructure that this is now part of the the cost of doing business, unfortunately. Um, And I don't know that banning crypto will necessarily change that. I think, you know, hackers have been uh, at it for, for years and years. I think, you know, crypto in a weird way, you know, has given some advantage to, to federal law enforcement in terms of tracking some of these, these dollars, but, or these, these funds. But uh, I, I don't think banning crypto will prevent or, or, or curb uh, these hacks. I'm, I'm more inclined towards it than I ever would have thought uh, as we just see these get worse and worse over the next few months. Let's leave it there, though, and quickly mention what's going on on Wall Street. The talent war, Steve, I need to know how it's going to shake out because you've got huh. some of the biggest firms on the street like J.P. Morgan insisting that workers come back into the office. Meanwhile, you've got others, some of the smaller ones, Jeffries, for instance, Citigroup. They're going with more of the hybrid approach that might entice bankers, Steve, some of the talent. Is this going to be a major moment for a talent drain from the top firms or no? Well, think about it, Kelly. Where where are they getting the top talent from? Are they going to be younger people or are they going to be older people? So the, the obviously the answer is they're going to be younger people. So what do younger people want? They want the flexibility of working from anywhere. And think about what these companies are now. They're not financial companies. They're tech companies. Where do you find the brightest minds in Silicon Valley, in, in all little pockets of tech companies around the world, around the U.S.? What do they want to do, Kelly? They want to work from anywhere. If they want to work from anywhere, then you have to afford them the ability to work from anywhere. And this is an old guard versus new guard. This is going to be a line in the sand. Hmm. And I think the old establishments have this wrong. And I think the new ones, more flexibility, are the winners. So you're going to push for work from home. Forget forget. Well, well, I'm I'm here. I'd rather be wearing shorts right now and (laughs) looking at the uh, the forest through the trees. Yeah, Ed's the future uh, as I look around uh, for those of us who are. Anyway, Uh, guys, thank you all very much for joining me for Rapid Fire today. We really appreciate it. Ed Lee, Christina Partsinevelis and Steve Grasso. And let's take a quick check on the yield of the 10-year right now. 1.37% was down at 1.36 a moment ago. When yields soared earlier this year, the tech stocks tumbled, but is going the other way going to benefit big tech? Well, yes. If you're going with today's results, we've still got Amazon and Alphabet higher. Amazon, of course, helped by the Jedi uh, reversal over at the Pentagon. We're all of these names, by the way, for the most part, hitting record highs today before pulling back. We're talking tech with Mark Mahaney after the break. 
Welcome back. Lots of turmoil in the tech world. And yet the tech trade still seems to be mostly working. Fang names, they opened higher today with Amazon, Microsoft, Google and Facebook all hitting all time highs. Some of them reversing now. Amazon still up about 4.7 percent despite losing its founder at a critical time. Meanwhile, the China tech trade reversing as Beijing's crackdown on Didi sends shares of JD.com, Pinduoduo and Alibaba all sliding. Alibaba even down more than 3 percent right now. And behind all of this, the 10 year yield continues to sink below 1.4 percent. We're down to levels we haven't seen since February. It's a move that should continue to benefit these growth names. And is this the whole story right now? Let's bring in Mark Mahaney. He's head of Internet Research at Evercore ISI. Mark, it's great to see you. How much of this is macro driven? Oh, I think it's a large component of it. Uh, and uh, one, you pointed out the, the interest rates. Uh, that was clearly a ding to a lot of the uh, tech stocks, but particularly to the more speculatively valued tech stocks. That isn't big tech. Uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple are not speculatively valued. But anyway, that's part of it. The other one is, you know, we are moving from a, a kind of a cyclical recovery, a cyclical play. Q2 is going to be the fastest GDP growth quarter. And now we're beyond that. We're in Q3. And then you start looking ahead to 2022 and 2023. And you like these secular growth companies because they grow materially faster than the economy, materially faster hmm. than cyclical uh, companies in a regular market environment. That's what we're getting into. So now people are starting to weigh back, weigh back in the uh, 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 secular growth names. And the best assets in there are the ones that are trading up today. Yeah. So they they win in all environments, it seems, a lot of these companies. I mean, they're they're just, they're, they're massive. They seem to have no sign of slowing down. Sure, they've gone sideways here and there for, you know, for a lot of time. But in terms of market share, in terms of earnings power, it seems to keep growing. I want to ask you about Amazon specifically. How big a deal is this reconsideration from the Pentagon about Jet? which says it's now thinking about sharing this contract between Microsoft and Amazon. Well, so that's been a it's it's a relatively big issue and maybe the right thing is being done now. So we probably should open this up to multiple uh, vendors. That's probably how this should be should have been awarded in the first place and probably how it will be awarded going forward. That's clearly big news. The other piece of big news is this is the kind of day two or day one without Jeff Bezos. And it turns out Amazon is still delivering packages, still selling cloud computing. So it's kind of the concern of the CEO transition has come and it's gone. Now we know that Jassy is the CEO and business is continuing as usual. That said, I think Jassy's got a couple of of unusual challenges that Bezos didn't have to face. The question for Amazon's shareholders is, can he execute well against those going forwards? You have Amazon with a $4,500 price target, about 25% upside. Of the whole complex, you know, would you rank them favorite to least favorite? Do you think people can just own them, broadly speaking, for the reasons you named, if they think we're heading back into that kind of back-to-the-future, low-growth environment? Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, uh, Kelly, I don't think these stocks work in every environment and they clearly haven't. Uh, they didn't. At least Amazon didn't over the last six months as you had a cyclical strong market. But if you get back into secular strong markets, then Amazon can outperform. Assuming, again, that uh, Jassy handles some of these unusual risks, the regulatory risk, the employee management risk and kind of the eBayification. That's something I've been concerned about of the Amazon marketplace, mm. making sure it doesn't get cluttered like eBay's did, because if they don't get that right, they're going to have falling customer satisfaction. That's Jassy's uh, concern. That should be one of his uh, principal concerns. But anyway, our, our top pick here is Amazon has been. We like it as the back half of the year and the next year play. And then Uber as a, as kind of a COVID recovery play. And I continue to like Facebook, and particularly because of some research we did recently on the Oculus Quest device. Got to ask you about Uber before we go here. They're obviously suffering because Didi is under so much pressure. Few could have seen that coming, but Uber shares haven't really performed since the IPO. 
Well, okay, we've gone through a roller coaster. Uh, we went roller coaster down because investors do care about profits, and there's a lot of concerns. We still haven't seen a really pro- we haven't seen profits yet out of Uber, and so Uber's got something to prove. I think they can do it. We think they can do it, and we think that's going to be behind a re-rating in Uber shares in the back half of this year and going into next year. So I really like the risk reward here. We also need kind of a clean, smooth COVID recovery, but we're not having that. We shouldn't have expected it, and so the stock's been kind of at times disappointed that. Uh, ride sharing didn't kind of smoothly, you know, quickly rocket ship back. It's not going to do that, but it will do that. We are going to commute again. We are going to business travel again. And uh, Uber is going to be a, a major play off that. And so we like Uber as a stock. We think valuation is highly attractive. Buy it before they prove profitability. And we think they're going to see we're going to get that proof in the next six to 12 months. Right. Buy it before the story goes your way. And again, a good reminder that maybe cyclical revival is the biggest threat to, you know, if you want to be an investor, have exposure to the big tech names. Um, and we all hope we get that at some point. Uh, but, Mark, thanks for now. We really appreciate it. It's great to have you on today. Thank you, Kelly. Mark Mahaney of Evercore ISI. So the mega cap tech names are trading near record highs. But up next, we'll talk about the tax threat that could derail the rally. Stay with us. A global minimum tax may be coming as more than 100 countries are on board. So if it's going to happen, what we need to know is how which companies will be hit the hardest by it. Robert Frank, do tell. Well, Kelly, uh, multinational companies will pay $150 billion a year more in taxes every year under the new agreement for this global minimum tax. 130 countries actually signed up for the plan. That's a lot more than expected. It's scheduled to take effect in 2023. It has two basic parts. The first is a new system of taxing companies based on where they earn their sales and profits, so where their customers are, rather than their physical operation or the headquarters. It would hit companies with 20 billion euros or more in sales a year and pre-tax profit margins of at least 10%. Now, this is aimed at the big tech companies, which have for years come under fire for funneling profits to low tax havens like Ireland. But it would also affect big pharma, biotech, luxury goods, and some consumer brands. A special Amazon provision ensures that Amazon still gets taxed even if its margins fall below that 10% threshold. And then the second piece is this global minimum tax of at least 15%. The Biden administration is saying a 15% floor would end this global race to the bottom in corporate tax rates. It is also critical to Biden's plan to increase the U.S. corporate tax rate since it would reduce the incentive to move jobs and income offshore. Now, nine countries so far have not agreed to this plan, including, and very importantly, Ireland, Hungary, and several Caribbean nations. Negotiators hope to reach a final deal in October, and it still has to go through Congress. Kelly? Ireland probably being the key one to watch. Robert, thank you, Robert Frank. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.